0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Seth. i one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to walk us through this text this morning. Uh, this is what I would describe as a non-positive passage. It's... Um, not that any of Malachi so far has been overwhelmingly positive, but this one in particular, this is kind of the high point of the book of Malachi, um, kind of like the thrust of like the central of the argument here, and uh, I just kind of want us to buckle up before we get going uh, with that in mind. Um, you know, speaking of non-positive experiences, I ate a salad the other week, and and it was kind of this experience, you know, where, you know, would. Maybe you're like me, where like whenever I go to order a salad, like if you go to lunch with me and order a salad, you can say, oh, Seth has low self-esteem right now. He's ordering a salad, because you think that's going to like take it up a notch. You're like, oh, I made a salad. I I'm good. I'm, can make good choices, you know, so salad. And But I was out with a group of friends, and we went to a lunch at this place called Arizona Wilderness Brewing Company, which has an excellent kitchen, by the way, and I was going, I've been eating pretty bad. I'll get a salad, you know, so I ordered... Um, a grilled chicken salad and the guy next to me ordered this burger called the Notorious (laughs) P.I.G. which is a pork burger with bacon chopped up and into the ground up pork with bacon on top and a side of french fries cooked in duck fat (laughs) and I had a grilled chicken salad. (laughs) Right, and it was a good salad, which doesn't mean it was good. It means it was good for a salad. <laughs> my, my wife makes me eat salads at home, which I generally appreciate, but she'll say, is this good? And I mean, mean, relatively for a salad or good objectively, because a salad can only be good for a salad. It can't be good compared to other foods, right? <laughs> Nobody's ever trying to eat less salad. That's not a thing. Nobody's ever working on that. But, the, but they, they bring out the food, you know? And it's like, man, these people got these like, decadent, rich things that will certainly end their life sooner than mine. But I'm, I, get this, I get this salad, right? And I immediately go, I regret my decision. I got what I asked for, and I asked for the wrong thing, right? And that is what's going on in this text. Is Israel asks for the wrong thing. God come do justice. And God says, are you sure that's what you want to ask for? Regularly growing up my brothers and I would fight or my brother, I have one brother and I, I said brothers. My brother and I would fight. You know, I he's my little brother, so I knew how to push his buttons. I would know how to make him react, so I would antagonize him and then he would react. And then I would recognize that he stepped into the trap just right, and I would go tell my dad, hey, Daniel did this and this, you know. And my dad would look at me and he would say, do you want me to do justice or mercy to you? (laughs) And that's kind of what's going on in this text right here, is God is saying, Israel, you're asking for justice. Are you sure you want justice? Have you looked in the mirror recently? Have you taken on this inventory of your life because what's going on here is Israel um, is in the midst of all these unrighteous pagan nations and they're looking left, they're looking right, they're looking in front, they're looking behind them and saying, look at all this tyranny, look at all this oppression, look at the way that all these people, look at how sinful the world is, where is the God of justice? You want me to, and Israel's going, who's accusing these people? I will drag them into court, I'll be the ones, I'll, I'll bear witness against the nations These terrible, evil people. Look at all these broken, sinful nations. What are you doing, God? Why are you waiting to do justice? You know what, where is the God of justice? Where is the good judge? Because I don't see him. You know what, and Israel goes, you know what, I'll be the witness and I'll be the judge. And Israel's putting themselves up over the judge of the nations. Asking the nations to sit in the defendant seat while they sit in the witness chair and on the judgment throne. Where is the God of justice? And God says, he'll come, and it will not be pleasant for you, Israel. This idea here is brought up again in the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter, when Peter says, judgment begins with the household of God. And if we look around at the world around us and say, God, come judge these people. They're nuts, they're sinful, they're rebellious. This is God kind of saying, hold up. Do you want justice or do you want mercy? Because I think everyone wants justice until you realize what it means for you. That's the whole idea of this text, is God will come and do justice and it will not be a pleasant experience. And are you sure you really want that? Be careful what you ask for. So, we're going to see God kind of gives three images here that we're going to wrap our minds around as we walk through this text. The first one is an image of collaboration how Israel is actually just like the nations. They're just like their neighbors. They've collaborated with the spirit of the age. The second one is that of correction how is God's judgment actually corrective to his people? And the last one is the courtroom. Israel's trying to be the judge of the nations. And God is going to say, that's not how this courtroom drama is going to play out. You're in my seat. So let's pray, and then we'll walk through this text, all right? Father, thank you for your word, which causes us to have to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. Pray that you'll help us see the way this text is speaking to us, not just to Israel back then, but to the way your spirit's applying it in our hearts now. God, I pray that you'll be kind to us as we're convicted. In the name of your son we pray, amen. Amen. So the first image is that of collaboration, right? Uh, This is pretty common. A lot of times what we think happens when people walk off into sinfulness is that they go off kind of choosing their own way or they're being individuals. This is what happens when we think a lot of times there's like this narrative of, you know, you grow up in the church and then you become an independent thinker and just conform to the ways of the world, right? There's no such thing as being an independent thinker. There's no such thing as choosing your own way. You're just choosing, do I want to listen to the voice of God or to the voice of the world? And so what many can true as thinking as independently or being your own person is actually you're just doing exactly what the world's telling you to do, following their script, acting like they act, doing what they say. But in your heart, you feel like you're being your own person. Many times we think that like we're inventing new ways to sin, but we're just not. We're just copy and pasting what our neighbors do. And so often, if we wanna know, how do I struggle with sin, all you need to do is look at your neighbors and say, how do they struggle with sin? I'm good at judging other people, but poor judging myself. But basically, if I see how they're judging, how, what I, how I'm inclined to judge them, basically, I'm looking at myself, right? Our neighbors are mirrors to us. And Israel is saying, look at all these sinful nations. Look at what they're doing. They're pagans, they're adulterers, they're liars, they're cheats, they manipulate. And God is saying, You are just like them. You are collaborating with them. You're conspiring along with them to rebel against God. And he gives us this list, in particular in verse 5. And he he lists these things. I'll kind of walk through these because it's easy to see them at a distance. But I want us to be cut by them like Israel would have been cut by them. Verse 5, 3 verse 5. I will be a swift witness against these sorcerers. All right. Who in here struggles with black magic? You know, like it's probably maybe a couple of you, you know, paganism is on the rise a little bit, but I was thinking about Redemption Gateway going, I'm not sure if people think they struggle with sorcery as a way of sin and maybe other things on this list, but here's here's what I want us to understand about sorcery is magic is about saying the magic words or doing the magic ritual in order to manipulate the spiritual world to do your will. So it's about saying the magic words, doing the magic rituals, To manipulate the God to accomplish my will. This is actually the essence of the commandment do not take the Lord's name in vain. It's don't abracadabra Jesus Christ onto your will. I was feeling, you know, this Thursday morning, I woke up, I was driving to church. You know, I have a newborn at home. I mean, I think he's three months old, so I don't think that counts, but he sleeps like a newborn, so it counts in my mind but i've been feeling a little more foggy than usual for various reasons mostly that one but you know the you're choosing i'm choosing regularly do i get more sleep or do i spend time in prayer you know you try and study and it's less obvious so i kind of had studied substantially less for this sermon than i had for maybe previous sermons wake up thursday morning i'm feeling you know kind of a distance between the lord not because he's like mad at me but because this is how relationships work you spend less time with someone you feel a distance with them right it's not so Thursday morning I wake up and I think oh man I'm preaching on Sunday it's an intense text I better pray and get close with God so that my sermon is good sorcery I'm gonna do the right things, say the magic words, enact the right rituals so that God gives me what I want. There's a sweet um, woman from my previous church, when I was there, she had this, she came to me with like this, you know, skin oil stained, held for a long time, prayer, that was like a full page long, and she held this, She'd say, I said this prayer, I read this page every morning and I prayed this prayer over my husband that he would become a Christian and I prayed this prayer and he became a Christian. Now I'm praying the same prayer over my kids and they're not becoming Christians. Why isn't it working? Sorcery saying the magic words to manipulate God is doing what I want him to do. This is not to say that God's not responsive in relationship to his people, but he will not be crowbarred or shoehorned into conforming to us. He's not gonna be tricked into action by us doing the right thing, saying the magic words. I think we're all inclined to sorcery even though none of us say abracadabra. Manipulating God. It's actually what all of these things on this list have in common is they have to do with manipulation. right? I'm going to use people, not love people. I'm going to use them to accomplish my goal and God's one of the people that I'm going to use. I don't love God, I want to use God. That's sorcery. Against the adulterers. Again, using people, not loving people. Adultery is saying I use my spouse for certain social setting approval situations, right? She's the mother of my children. She helps me fit in at church. She, I use her for like the social benefit, but then I use a different woman for physical gratification. I don't love either of them, I use both of them. It's adultery. Now we can't believe that if we haven't had the actual physical encounter of adultery that we're off the hook. In the New Testament, Jesus says if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. You're using them to satisfy some internal fantasy. You're using them to bring pleasure to yourself even if it's just looking against the adulterers, using people, not loving people. Against those who swear falsely, those who lie how lying is the essence of manipulation because insanity is living in a non-reality and when I lie to you and you believe me, you now live in a non-reality and so lying is actually one of the most harmful, damaging forms of manipulation because I am creating insanity in you because I'm trying to protect some illusion of false reality, I'm trying to get you to buy into some false reality so I am making you insane through my lying. It's not loving people, it's using people. Against those who oppress the hired worker in their wages. You know, there are whole schools of thought, especially on the right side of political spectrum, which say that a hired worker cannot be oppressed in their wages because they consented to their wages. If you don't like what you're paid, find a different job. You know, and so the market is a helpful starting point for setting people's salaries, but we need to understand, especially those of us who are part of setting people's salaries, that God decides what is a just salary, not the market. That markets err. Using people, what can I? what's the least I can pay them so that I make the most money rather than loving people? What does justice entail or require? How can I make working here a blessing? How can I make them grateful? How can I repay what I think they deserve as fellow image bearers? Using people, not loving people. Just because it's not slavery doesn't mean it can't be oppressive. It's a biblical category. The widow and the fatherless, they are needy. They tend to not give. They tend to need, not always. But generally speaking, uh, the wood and the farless are easy to thrust aside or oppress because they're not value add in terms of bottom line. They're mostly value take in terms of bottom line. I cannot use them, so I don't want them around. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner, the wanderer, the people passing through, the immigrant. This idea of like the sojourner is would have been totally countercultural, especially to Israel's neighbors, because Israel's neighbors believed in what's called regional deities, right? That tribe had their God, that tribe had their God, that tribe had their God. And so in the eyes of the people back then, if a sojourner came through, they were not my problem, they were that other God's problem. Right? My God didn't make them, their God made them. My God doesn't provide for them. Their God provides for them. And so if they have problems, they should take it up with their God over there. But for Israel, that doesn't apply because there are not regional deities in Israel's worldview. There is one God, one father of all, one maker of all people. And so when a sojourner comes through, it's not a person who's another God's problem, but this is a person who's in my God's image. Regardless of why or how they got here, they are in God's image, and I am not to thrust them aside or disregard them. This theme is actually picked up in the New Testament fairly regularly, um, especially when you read the word hospitality. Uh, we tend to think of hospitality through the lens of like American culture, which is basically, you know, having a clean house and making dinner, which is not necessarily a bad thing. That's a good thing. I like having a clean house and making dinner. Um, so the gift of hospitality tends to be can I create a space in my home for people who want to come and me- make them feel comfortable? And that's. A good thing, but that's not necessarily the biblical idea of hospitality. Actually, the word hospitality in the New Testament, and actually the word that the Greek translates here of, uh, in of uh, the Old Testament context, is the word philazenia. So there's two parts to that word phila, like the word Philadelphia, brotherly love, and zenia, which means immigrant or stranger or foreigner, where we get the idea of xenophobia, fear of the stranger, fear of the immigrant, fear of the foreigner. Philizonia is love of the foreigner, love of the stranger, love of the person different than you. And so uh, this idea in the New Testament regularly comes up, seek to show hospitality, regularly seek opportunities to welcome in the person not like you. In the New Testament, that spiritually tends to mean people who are non-believers, people who are not of your household of the faith. They are outsiders to the faith, welcome in non-believers. Especially in the Old Testament, it's more concrete sense, meant people from different nations those who thrust aside the sojourner, and those who do not fear me. This is like the summary statement. All of these things is the result of those who don't fear me. You know, we had our Christmas wreath up, which is uh, an important thing for some people, but we had a Christmas wreath up on our front door, and uh, the other week I was taking out the trash, and opened the door, and there was like bird six inches from my face. (laughs) So I'm holding trash, it's like, you know, you know, sirens, like war zone, you know, and there's this bird around, and I'm, I drop the trash, I go with us, my wife's going, what's your problem, what's going on, I'm like, there's a bird in my face, and she's going, birds don't do that, what are you talking about? You need a nap, you know, and so I'm going. <laughs> uh, so then, like, I, so I kind of, like, sneaky walk the trash out, and as I'm coming back, the bird kind of, like, is doing this, like, kind of dive bomb thing at me. As I'm coming into my house, invading my space, what is wrong with this bird? And so what ended up hap- like happening is I saw that there was a nest inside the little um, wreath thing, right? So I took down the wreath, because this bird was attacking me, you know? But, the, but I tried to keep it up there for like a couple of days, like I'm gonna keep this nest up there, you know? But then every time I'd walk out the door, I was kind of doing like this, one, two, three, go! You know, and I'd just run out the door. A Couple times I would smack the door on the other side to see if it would make the bird fly away prematurely. Um, <laughs> But for a whole week, every time I walked through the door, it was like hyper awareness, dodging, because um, I was afraid of the bird. I had a fear of the bird. <laughs> this is how fear functions. Fear produces a hyper attentiveness or hyper awareness. Right. So when I'm afraid of the bird, I'm constantly looking for the bird, especially in certain contexts. Right. This is fear of the Lord. We tend to think it's just like this terror rooted in nothing, but actually, fear in the Old Testament mostly functions as awareness. When I'm Walking in the fear of the Lord, I am hyper aware of his presence. I'm acting differently because it's there. I'm posturing myself in such a way, knowing that it is there. Fear of the Lord. Do walk in the fear of the Lord. So read this list and um, the first question we ask is, um, do you want justice or mercy for you? And therefore, do you want justice or mercy for others? Let me sit with that. The next image is the image of correction. So my wife is really good at organizing the house, which generally means I don't know where things are. Um, there's, a strategy, there's a strategy involved, and I don't know the strategy, so I don't know where things are, right? Um, I was looking for a toothbrush the other day because mine was wearing out, and so I went looking for it, and I found my retainer, right? I had braces. Now I have a retainer. I hadn't worn this retainer in like five years. You know? So I was thinking, this will be interesting. You know, I found my retainer, so I kind of toothbrushed it off. I went to put it in, this would be nice, I'll have straight teeth tomorrow, straighter teeth tomorrow. Put it on, it only went on like 10 to 15% of the way. And I was like, hmm. So I just bit down, <laughs> shoved it on there, heard a couple pops, did not feel good. I was like, this will be great, it'll be good tomorrow. Woke up in the morning, took my retainer out, which is a un- gross experience no matter what, right? Those of you who have retainers, there's no good way of doing that. You know, just bleh, you know. But it's, like, full of blood. I'm like, well, I got straight teeth, so whatever, you know? So, teeth raking. Went to lunch that next day. I forget who I went to lunch with, but I was at Panera, and I ordered some, like, bacon sandwich. I couldn't bite through the bacon. I felt like my teeth, like, I got punched in the mouth. I was like... Oh, a sandwich! I forgot. Oh my gosh, I feel like I had like, just like gums for teeth. But I kept wearing the retainer, you know, because come this far, go all the way. It's been a couple. You know, it's been a couple weeks now. There's less blood in the retainer. It's hurting less. I'm eating again. It's basically fun. But this is. This has to do with the pain of correction, right? The pain of correction. This is what God says here in verse two. And just kind of like, imagine God saying this to you. You have wearied me. You have wearied me. Those are your parents just like the mom, 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 mom. You "You have wearied me with your words. I'm coming to judge. Verse two. When I come, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Just kind of a side note here one of the things I hear that makes me nauseous is when people say things like, or ask questions like, how was the worship at church today? Like you went to a movie and you're assigning Yelp review to it. Our worship is what we bring to the Lord, what we contribute from the place of our heart. So if you wanna ask, how was the worship today? You need to ask, how was what I brought to the Lord today? Not how was Matthew's voice? Four out of five. If you want to have, if you want to worship the Lord well, He needs to purify you. This is speaking of the purification of judgment. That for God's people, judgment is not punishment, but it's purifying. This idea of a refiner's fire. Uh, scholar N. T. Wright was asked one time is the fire in the Bible literal or metaphorical? And he said, it is certainly metaphorical. And people in the room went, oh thank goodness. And he said, for something much worse than fire. Fire is the closest thing we got to describe what it's like to have impurities burned off of God's people. How hot does that have to be? To melt the impurities off of gold. A Fuller's soap. I was on a mission trip when I was in high school. If you met me in high school, you wouldn't have wanted to be on a mission trip with me. Um, But we were doing this thing where, you know, kind of like part of the goal of mission trips is you just make high school kids who grew up in kind of easy environments do things hard so that they learn character, you know. And so we're gonna pour concrete, and we had these like, you just smack down the ground, you know, to like get it nice and packed and level. And all the weak people on the team were using gloves, but me, because I was an athlete, was not gonna put on gloves to do manual labor like all these nerds, you know? So I'm going on my own hands, bare hands, bare hands, bare hands, smack, 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 smack. I tear the skin off my hands. If you met me in high school, you'd have been like, that was good for you, <laughs> you know? You, <laughs> My high school pastor, named Michael, who's a great pastor, says, "And I'm like, it hurts. It's, my hands are stinging. You know, I'm going, oh man, I should have wear gloves." And he's like, "Yeah, probably been good. You're pretty arrogant. You know, I hope this helps you be less arrogant." And he goes, "I have something that'll help." And he brings over hand sanitizer and says, "This will help." <laughs> and I go, "Whatever you say, pastor." You know, <laughs> squirts it on there, and I like drop to my knees. My eyes roll the back in my head. I'm like convulsing on the ground. He's laughing. Everyone's laughing. They're having a great time. If again, if you met me in high school, you'd be like, "This was good for you. You needed, you needed this. This was good." You know, you know, he's a good pastor, and you know, sometimes good pastors know when to apply pressure. So, he, when he comes, it will be like hand sanitizer on your open wound. I just want to... God, come near, bring me your presence. Are you sure? You know, Lord, come judge. Are you sure? One of the things that we tend to do, especially in American cultures, we tend to assume that God's will for our life is the path of least resistance. I think God is leading me to, well, on what basis? Well, it was the easy one. Right You show up to a group people ask you searching questions, I don't, like being, I don't like being questioned, leave the group. You go to therapy, they try to unpack your past, like I don't like this, it's unpleasant, stop going to therapy. You come to preaching, Seth's preaching, this is gonna be uncomfortable, we leave. You know? We're pain avoidant people, rather than pain engaging people, and I think that for a lot of us, our pain avoidance is hamstringing or harming our spiritual growth. The pain of correction is real, and I need us to kind of have to deal with that reality. The last image here is the image of the courtroom. Where is the God of justice? Israel says, if he won't come, I will serve as judge. I'll judge the nations. If God will not judge the nations, I will. I'll be the witness, I'll be the judge. And the defendant's seat will go the nation's What happens in this is first, God walks into the courtroom and says to Israel sitting in the judge seat, says, get out of my seat. Just kind of imagine being in that. I'll be the judge, I have good intentions. And God says, you're in my seat, get out. Oh, okay, fine, you judge nations. Not only that, but then he looks at the nations in the defendant seat and says, You are sitting in Israel's seat. The nations are not on trial here. Israel is on trial here. So you go from thinking, I'll be the judge and the witness to actually recognizing I'm the one on trial. And then not only that, but in verse 5, God says, I will be a witness against The God the Father says, I like to call to the witness stand the Lord Jesus Christ, the omnipresent, omniscient one who knows your thoughts, your actions, and has a perfect memory. I'm calling him as a witness against you. This is not going like I thought it was going to happen. Maybe I don't want justice, maybe I want mercy. And now you're on trial, God is judging, and God is serving as key witness against you. This is kind of where this text leaves off. Do you want justice or mercy? But the beauty of the Bible is that it doesn't end with Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament. That the reality that Christ comes And the key reason he comes is to sit in the seat of the defendant on your and I behalf. In Romans three, Paul writes this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation means the one absorbing the judgment, the one absorbing the wrath. That when Christ comes, not only have you now been kicked out of the the seat of judge, you've been kicked out of the seat of witness, but he comes and says, I am going to sit in the defendant's seat for you. Get out. You are not here to prove yourself. You're not here to absorb the wrath. You are here to witness me save you, and for God's people, this is why judgment can be purifying and not punishing, is because the punishing judgment has been poured out on Christ in our place. That he's the propitiation, the absorber of our wrath, that he is a good judge. In our current cultural moment, the idea of God as judge doesn't really sit well. Why does God have to judge? Can't he just be love? Consider this story I heard a couple weeks ago. A husband and wife are wa- on a walk with their three-year-old daughter. It's 10 a.m., a drunk driver hits the wife and daughter, killing them instantly. <coughs> How do you feel about the driver? What if I told you this was his fourth DUI? Uh, what if I told you at 8 a.m. two hours previously a judge let him out early on the basis of what the judge thought was authentic remorse so that he could immediately leave the courtroom go to the drugstore drive and kill this wife and daughter now who you mad at the judge Right, see we all want good judges. The question is who do we want to serve as the judge? And this is the beauty of God most high, is that he is the best judge who sees all the sin, who does not just let people off easy, but certainly, finally, and fully, and without holding back, punishes every sin that was ever committed fully and without holding back at all. This is the way that goes on to say that he was just and the justifier, that God most high is a good judge and he is a good witness against you and me, but rather than us sitting in the defendant seat, Christ himself sat in our seat and took our punishment. Amen. When we consider the courtroom drama of heaven, we are passive recipients of grace. That we have nothing to prove and no one to impress because Christ is the one who sat in our seat and who now, because of his sacrifice, intercedes for us, intercedes for us to the Father. No longer a witness against us, but a witness for us. And we can rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this image. Thank you for this uh, courtroom reality. Thank you for taking us out of the seat of judge because we would not have been good judges. We would have been biased judges, we would have been um, arbitrary judges, but you are the good judge who does not overlook things that should be overlooked, that should not be overlooked. That you're not a forgetful witness, but a perfect one. But not only that, but you remove us from the defendant's seat, so we do not have to defend ourselves. God, help us be secure because of your grace. Let us rest in your finished work. In the name of your son we pray, amen.